Hello and welcome to the Zapiens Podcast. I'm your host, Lloyd Waits. Today I have on Jose Alonso, a man who was part of the discovery of element 106, a new element called Seaborgium, and then has retired actually three times before eventually actually joining the Isodar experiment, which is a big part of my thesis work. I've collaborated with Jose, and he's been a mentor to me for, for many years, so I really appreciated having him on and having this conversation with him today. It was a lot of fun. Long time no see, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. So this, I mean, it's been virtual for the last two years, years or three yeah. years or something. So Yeah, so it's good to see you again. Yeah. And you're here for the MIT reunion, the right? MIT reunion, yep. the 60th class reunion wow yeah. so, and it was it was good fun and there, there there were a fair number of us here yeah but um did you keep in touch with a lot of the people that from we keep yeah i lived in east campus mm-hmm. and uh so kept um uh th- there was a, a core group of us that were really sort of our own fraternity if you will it yeah. was because um, uh, the core group was about oh maybe 15 the same class all physics majors course eight and uh, and and yes we've kept together um, uh, quite uh, um, hey, you know some of them live on the west coast mm-hmm. but the ones that live on the east coast almost all of them have kids that are on the west coast so they make pilgrimages out <laughs> and so we, we we do get together quite quite a bit yeah. so it's, it's great fun so i mean over that long period of time, you've been involved with MIT in, in so many different ways. How have you seen it kind of change over time, and for the better, for the worse, different? Over time, no. Well, except for the you know the huge amount of construction, new construction that's going on. It's uh, uh, the the biggest difference uh, that 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 occurred for me with my connection with MIT was when I went from undergraduate to graduate. Um, as an undergraduate, you work yourself to the bone. It's just, it's just, there's, it's, un, it's, it's relentless. And, uh, and everybody said that, you know, tech is hell is sort of the, the, the watchword. But when you get to graduate school, it was totally different. Totally different. Suddenly the professors aren't just these distant figures that are off there. They're your colleagues and you're, and, and you uh, are, are with them all the time and, uh, and communicate with them. Um, the physical grounds are basically the same, but, uh, but, but the, the, the experience is totally different. So, so and that was the major, I'd say the major, the difference, if you will, or the major change that I saw. But, um, uh, uh, you know, I consider it, you know, myself very lucky to have been able to, um, latch up with Janet mm-hmm. and, uh, to be able to sort of find a way of, of, of continuing my connection with MIT. Yeah. So I, I know kind of bits and pieces of your story where I know that you've retired three times, for example. <laughs> and you, you did undergrad and graduate school at MIT, and then you went on to work with, with National Labs, and there are still some loose connections there. But I've never heard kind of the, the full the, the, story. The, the full it, story. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, one of the questions that I'm sure that, that, that everybody asks is, how did how'd you get interested in physics? And right. That was, right. And that was, uh, um, well, my father was an engineer, a civil engineer. And uh, uh, he sort of, I I was interested in science and did well in math. And so sort of pushing me into engineering fields. But uh, I didn't really know anything about the basic sciences. And uh, 
uh, we were living in South America at the time. Um, my father came from Spain. He was from his Basque from the northern northern provinces of Spain, and um, he um, settled in the United States. He, he came over first. He was a not only an engineer but was a uh, championship tennis player. So he was uh, he was actually the captain of the Davis Cup team from Spain, and they had won the European Zone, and this was in 1920, and uh, came over to play the Australians who had won the Asian Zone, for the, and the winner of that then played the current cup holder, which was the United States, that had some very, very good players. It was a fellow by the name of Bill Tilden, who was sort of, <coughs> excuse me, the reigning tennis player, and... and um, so when, when they were over here, my father was, he was already 30. So he was sort of beyond the age when he wasn't sort of a little past his prime. So he didn't play. He was just the captain of the team. But his brother, who was five years younger than him, uh, did, did play and had, had a, some extremely exciting, one very exciting match where he had essentially lost the match completely and managed to recover and go ahead and win the game. And, and there was a, this was in Philadelphia, there was a, a local... Uh, business magnate who had his own company who he said by god the spirit of the alonzo brothers i really wanted my company and he <laughs> offered them jobs and so dad ended up went back to spain but came back about a year later and um and worked for the company for about 40 years well what was this company uh, the company is called the fuller company so oh, yeah. it was colonel fuller was the name of this of this gentleman um and it they had developed new technology which for the handling of bulk materials like Portland cement, for instance, powdered materials. Okay. And uh, for the transport of this um, by some very clever techniques that, that they had developed involving uh, an airbed that essentially fluidized the powder so that it would, and then a slight slope so that it would actually go down. And this was totally novel because up to the time, if you wanted to use cement, you had 40 pound bags. And that was basically it. So this was a real innovation. And during the 1930s, um, when during when the, the the federal government was involved with uh, the development of so many of the large hydro projects in the in the West, uh, his technology was 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 extensively used there. Uh, so he was involved with Hoover Dam, Shasta Dam, Grand Coulee, all of the major. Uh, uh, projects that wow. the, the, involving this, and even even the there's a huge caisson in the middle of the San Francisco Bay, which is part of the Bay Bridge, um, and so that, that his cement was used for for, for that as well. Um, but in the 1940s, uh, Dad was he was reaching what was then mandatory retirement age, and, and he had no intention of retiring. So he he Sounds made it familiar. <laughs> <laughs> right, president. He made an arrangement with the. Uh, uh, with a company to open a branch of the company in South America. Uh, so not only was he completely bilingual, trilingual, actually, he spoke French too, but um, uh, he had a lot of his friends from the university in Madrid that had gone directly to Argentina. So he had already sort of a network of people, the, the business associates. And uh, so in 1948, we moved down there. I was six. And um, he... It was a time when there was there was a dictator running Argentina, which was Juan Perón, and uh, Evita, his wife, was that, that is has been popularized with the had a very different picture of her than okay. <laughs> what, what was portrayed there. But um, th so things were rather sticky for foreigners there, especially Americans. Um, 
And, and so dad, because it was the commercial center, dad kept his office there, but we moved over to Uruguay to Montevideo, which is just quote, just across the river. And, um, uh, actually, it's about 300 miles away, or so so it's a it's a fairly a fairly across the river thing. But the river plate is huge; it's 200 miles at the at, at the mouth. It's 200 miles across, and so it's a it's a really big big thing. And um, so, uh, and Dad would commute back and forth on weekends. He'd come back, and at the time, it was it was fascinating because he would come by airplane. And the airplane that was used were seaplanes. So these were the planes that were originally developed to fly between San Francisco and, uh, and, and, and Hawaii. So the old, big, massive, four-engine seaplanes. And they were doing the duty then of traveling between Buenos Aires and, and uh, Montevideo. And uh, so I grew up there. But uh, I was in a British school and had... Uh, if you continued in that British school, you were heading towards, it was really aimed towards Cambridge in the UK. And I was much more interested in studying in the United States. So for high school, we had lived in San Rafael before going in, which is north of San Francisco, before going down to South America. And uh, so there was a, a boarding school there. So my parents, didn't, you know, they were down there. Dad was with his business. So they uh, sort of put me in charge, uh, in, in the charge of some friends that lived in, in the area here. And, and I was living in the boarding school. Um, so <coughs> at the time, there was a friend who um, was working at, at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Lawrence Radiation Lab at the time it was called, um, who uh, asked you know, a family friend. This was a, and 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 she knew I was sort of interested in science, but uh, said, "Would would you like to come over and visit the lab in Berkeley?" So I said, "Where's Berkeley?" You know, and what's what's the lab? <coughs> Not a clue about any any of this. Um, so she came and picked me up on a Saturday and drove me. Um, over, across the bay, I, I think the Richmond Bridge was just had just been finished, and um, put me in the in 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 the hands of of, of a friend of hers who was a graduate student and uh, working in the physics uh, in, in, with the accelerators, the particle accelerators there, doing experiments with, and uh, it was um, you know this was this was a world that I had just never even conceived could exist. Seeing these machines going down, seeing the Bevatron in full operation, seeing the 184-inch cyclotron, and, and what this guy was doing, he was setting up an external beam line um, using using a, uh, a technique which is known as a as a, um, um, a floating wire technique. It's called, and uh, where uh, you have you you you're running the beam through various magnets, and you. Uh, so you run this wire through the magnets, you excite the, mag the, the magnets, and then the rigidity of the particle is the tension that you put on it. So you have a little weight on the, on the bottom of it. And, uh, uh, and, and the, 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 um, you run a current through the wire as well so that it's, it actually moves in the magnetic field. And so I'm looking at these things and saying, oh, my God, this is fascinating. Um, and... Uh, so uh, anyway, at the, at the the end of that, just one day, that that convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. Uh, 
So the, uh, the, the, the really amazing part of that was that fast forward 20 years and I'm back in that same laboratory and I'm actually the director of those same machines that turned me on to the field originally. And that was, uh, you know, sort of a, a closing, a, a real closing of a loop. And, and it, was, it was great. So that's how I got into, into physics. Um, I came back from that. And uh, there was this thing called the Westinghouse Talent Search. And so I, I was all eager to do this. I was going to build a cyclotron until I started calculating how much iron I needed. They had no <laughs> laboratory facilities, no shop facilities, no nothing. So, well, okay, it became impractical. And so <laughs> I sort of wrote up something. It, it, it didn't go anywhere, but that was, that was, um, but so in, anyway, I was lucky to get into MIT and, um, uh, went into physics and you know, along with this was this was just in the end of or you know a year or two after Sputnik had gone up okay so there was this huge influx every half of the half of our class of 900 uh, were either physics or EE electrical engineering and that was that uh, started out that way it didn't end that way <laughs> <laughs> actually one fellow started out in physics found it a little hard switched to math, switched to economics, and finally between his junior and senior years, he was walking around Central Square past a pawn shop, and there was a cello there. So he said, you know, he went up, he went in and bought the cello and a little book about how to play the cello. And at our 25th reunion, he gave us a concert. <laughs> and he was actually the principal cellist in the Monaco Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> so, yeah. MIT offers wide opportunities yeah. for, uh, for, 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 for career development. That's, that's funny. I mean, even after all of those shifts, he was still able to be so successful. In, he in was final very successful. I mean, he found his niche. Yeah. And, that, and that was the, that was the thing. So that's how I got into, into science. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, at, at MIT, I, uh, um, as a, as an undergraduate, I did at the time you did a senior thesis. There was no Europs or anything else, so your research opportunity was first through junior lab, and uh, and then actually at junior lab, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So I mean, experimental physics was really what I what I was clearly cut out to do. And um, uh, George Valley was the was the leader of the um, uh, or the, the in charge of the junior lab. And at the end of my junior year, he actually hired me over the summer to work and to develop new experiments. And so the, the following year, I was uh, I was a, an instructor in in the in, in junior lab. And so that was uh, that was fun. Yeah. So uh, I guess towards the end of your your MIT career, how did it transition into working in the national labs and then eventually being director over at Berkeley? Yeah. Well, that was um, a lot of serendipity. Okay. Um, because this was a time, as I mentioned, that there was a huge uh, influx of students into physics, and uh, uh, and so this 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 wave um, continued through. And in about 1970, when most of them were are finishing and finishing their PhDs, hitting the job market. And it was a very, very difficult time. Um, at the time, I had also met Carol, who was, we, she was a graduate student in the same group. And uh, so we had what was known as the two-body problem to deal with. Two, not only one job, but two jobs to deal with. And, and so we were extremely fortunate in, first of all, um, that uh, there was uh, 
uh, Lee Grodson's our advisor, you know, so as the old boys network, really. I mean, you know, oh, I've got a couple of students that are coming out. You got, oh, yeah, sure, I can, you know, we, we can accommodate this. So uh, a, the, a friend, this friend of Lee's um, had been at Berkeley in, on the faculty and also at the lab. He was a, a nuclear chemist and was, um, uh, he'd sort of gotten into, into, uh, complete disagreement with the politics that was going on in, at, at Berkeley in the 1960s, um, where the administration at the time was then demanding loyalty oaths and other things. And, and this, this fellow had a Chinese, uh, postdoc and, um, and that was highly frowned upon by the extremely conservative leadership of the university at the time. Uh, so he essentially said, I'm just not going to put up with this and had an offer to go to Yale. So he moved to Yale and uh, it was to set up a group. So Carol and I became members of his group and he, and several other people that came from different places. And so, and we were setting up experiments in a heavy ion accelerator that was, uh, that was at Yale. And, um, so we, I was there for about four years in developing this program. And, uh, and it was, it was very interesting. This, this heavy ion accelerator was actually, um, there, two of them were built. They were, des they were designed by a common team from Berkeley and Yale. And then the uh, Office of the Atomic Energy Commission at the time essentially funded the construction of two of them, one at Yale and one at, at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And um, so uh, John Rasmussen, my, the, the, the fellow that came from Berkeley, uh, he um, had been working at the, at the Berkeley one. And so he set up a program at the more or less doing roughly the same things at, uh, at, at Yale. So I helped develop develop that and um, then completely out of the blue came a telephone call um, and we're we're sitting in the uh, in the computer room running running our IBM cards through <laughs> through the card <laughs> readers to, to run a job and uh, this is get a call we get, there's a page Jose Alonso on the telephone so um, picked up the phone and it is uh, uh, Al Giorso, who was a very well-known nuclear chemist, but instrumentation guy, really, uh, who was a sort of the uh, right-hand person of Glenn Seaborg. So Glenn Seaborg uh, had, was, was just coming back from having been the, uh, the director of the Atomic Energy Commission and uh, was uh, getting setting up a research group again. And between Seaborg and Giorso, uh, they had developed, they had discovered like 13, 14, 15 new elements, all What's on a basis of, uh, of starting with uranium or, and, and then uh, separating out the heaviest things that, could be, that they could get from there, and uh, basically with reactor irradiations, and then using those as targets. Especially with a heavy ion machine, where you could you, you're not just increasing the z by one, but you're 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 going from going higher multiples depending on the on the on the on the ion that you, you're accelerating, and and creating new elements. 
And Carol worked with uh, finding Seaborgium, didn't she? We we were okay. So this call was uh, was basically we have a couple of openings, two openings, because there was a, 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 a postdoc couple from Finland who had finished their term there and they wanted to go back to Finland. So suddenly two vacancies, and so this was, uh, and I'm sure that so uh, John Rasmussen, who we were working for at Yale knew Seaborg very well. And uh, so I think there was some connections over there. Seaborg or, or Gears are talking with him at some point said, you know, I've, I need to replace the Escolas who are want to go back. And says, well, I just happen to have, you know, so tremendous amount of luck and serendipity, if the way I look at it. And uh, uh, so we came and um, each each of us had, had a role in the group. So the, the, the group was... Uh, there was still another Finn there. It was Martin Normia, who was a, a more senior person, and uh, and Carol and I, and then a German, uh, young German postdoc, and uh, and 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 Giorso. So that that was sort of the core group of of science, and we all had our different roles. Carol was doing doing theoretical studies, um, and at, at this for the, the kind of reactions that you're dealing with are uh, just above the Coulomb barrier. Because you uh, and what we were the, what we were looking for was the discovery of element 106 and 100. So we had a californium target. So this is californium 249, which is uh, uh, which was made at Livermore on a basis of a lot of isotope separation mm-hmm. and whatnot processing, and and an oxygen 18 beam that came from the from the superhylac. And I remember that. Uh, uh, that the oxygen 18 came from uh, from also from Livermore, and the way they did it was through mass spectrometry of water. So, however, if you want to make sure that you've got O18, um, you set your mass separator. If you set it for mass 20, you don't really know what you're getting because it could be D2 O16. Which also gives you uh, the, the the that the same total mass of right. for the molecule of twenty, um, or uh, and the, so the only way to really do it was to set the the uh, the, the mass spectrometer for a mass twenty two, so that you had d- two deuterium atoms and one oxygen eighteen atom. Okay. So you can figure out what fraction of water is. In that mass, and it's truly infinitesimal. So uh, the Livermore people, who are also collaborating on the experiment, came with this little vial. It was about maybe five or ten cc's. That was uh, that was D two O eighteen, and this was in nineteen seventy three seventy four. The um, and the the value of that was I don't know thirty forty thousand dollars for that for the just just the, that that teeny amount of. Um, so uh, Giorso gives the uh, this this vial to the to this mad Finn, this Mati Nurmia, who was a brilliant guy, but um, and also a very good experimentalist, but uh, um, but really a, a cowboy. And so he, he uh, so he, he his job was to make O eighteen gas out of this liquid, out of this water. And so he set up an electrolysis <clears throat> column, um, but then you got to bleed this off. So you know, doing it with with ordinary water first, so that he's not. 
Um, and it went through all sorts of different ways of doing, you know, you got, got steel, a uh, little steel hemisphere and, uh, evacuate it and connected the thing up and close carefully did this and, and sucked the whole thing full of water right away. So that, that, that didn't work. And finally, what he, what he, he went down to Montgomery wards and bought a series of go-kart inner tubes. <laughs> like, like from from real go karts. From real go karts. Yeah, yeah. From Montgomery Ward. So these yeah. were, these were inner tubes for for for, for go karts, and um, and and that and it worked perfectly. Um, it worked perfectly uh, because basically, you know, you're, 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 you don't have huge pressure differences. Uh, so every morning when we were doing the experiments, he would march down to the control room at, uh, and give the op with his, with his little go-kart over his, mm-hmm. over his, his uh, arm and, um, and, and hand it to the, to the operators. And the um, operators sort of scratch their head up because so they go into the into the into the uh, uh the the terminal where the where the the ion source was and um well you know they're used to little lecture bottles of of gas and so dealing with this thing so there was no real place to put it so they sort of latched it onto the side of uh, of, of of some of the racks that are up in the in the high voltage terminal and uh, and, and 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 it worked. It worked okay. Except that I came in one day and the fire engines were all around because it turned out that <laughs> that the, the this this rubber had shorted out a thirty kV power supply, <laughs> and so started this fire. And of course, the oxygen inside, even though it was O eighteen, fueled yeah. the fire. So it was a <laughs> anyway. That, there were there was some excitement, but. Um, uh, so the role that we had, I, um, and everybody was highly compartmentalized there. So Carol did the theoretical works and the calculations of what the cross-section should be based on um, liquid drop models. And because uh, we're just above the Coulomb barrier. So in fact, nuclear structure really didn't have much, much impact on it. And my job was analyzing the data. So every day uh, I would have a big roll of tape that had been accumulated over the last 24 hours. And I'd cart that down to the computer center and hand it over the counter and they'd load it onto their big tape drives and load it all in. And then I'd, I'd, I'd spend the day basically um, trying to understand what was, what was on there. And it was, a, it, it was really messy because Giorso was uh, a, a, another super cowboy. And kept thinking of ways in which he could slightly improve the efficiency of the experiment, and which involved generally decreasing the dead time. But there were timers all throughout this because the way the experiment, this experiment worked, was um, we had a californium target and O18, um, and the reaction of californium plus O18 producing a compound nucleus just above the Coulomb barrier. Uh, as low energy as possible because you've got to get rid of the excitation energy without the nucleus fissioning. At this point, uh, there was a a parameter that we all dealt with, which was gamma N, gamma F. So gamma N is the probability of a neutron being emitted, and gamma F was the probability that it fissions. Um, And this ratio was maybe 100 to 1 of fission to neutrons. Uh, So if you've got to get rid of four neutrons... Uh, you've got to really, really uh, work very hard. <laughs> so um, the um, uh, so the area where the target was was extremely radioactive, extremely hot. So in, in fact, trying to look for the decay of, of 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 one atom every 
few days or so was was just it was almost impossible to do to look for one alpha particle that came out or a series of alpha particles from the mother daughter granddaughter decay chain um, so there was a technique which involved a thin target where the california is on the backside and the beam comes through uh, and the compound nucleus especially with o18 it's it's heavy enough that in fact it imparts a lot of recoil energy to the compound nucleus and so that it actually recoils out the back of the target into and stops in heli helium gas that is flowing so this uh, and the helium gas is taken out uh, transported a few meters away into a low background area and then deposited on the the rim of a wheel so it's called a vertical wheel experiment um, and Every few seconds, every six seconds, or, or you know, just once every second, it turns out, uh, this, the, the, the position was indexed over, and there are, were detector stations, alpha detector stations, at various points along there. Uh, so that every second you would essentially take this spot that's in front of this detector, and then this detector. And so if you see alpha particles, you can see how they actually decay uh, what, how, how, how the, the, the efficiency changes as, as, as you go around. Um, and then the idea was also to look for mother, daughter, granddaughter sequences in these. And that's really the only way in which you can, in which you can unambiguously determine, uh, establish that what you've seen is what you think it is. Because the, you're discovering a new element, so you don't know you have a prediction of what the alpha particle energy is going to be. But it decays from, let's say, 106 to 104 to an isotope that's already known. So you know what the energy and the lifetime of that particular isotope is, decays to 102, and you also, also know that. So that if you see something that's unusual at the very front that could not possibly be a, a, a direct uh, decay from there, then, then in fact you, you, you can establish the, uh, the veracity of the, of, of the experiment and your identification of these isotopes. We had huge competitions with the Russians in this. And there was this guy whose name was Flerov, Georgi Nikolaev Flerov, who uh, kept insisting, and this is Cold War, and, uh, and every time that the Berkeley guys came up with something, oh, we discovered that last year. It was, well, what's your evidence? Yeah. Well, the evidence was we saw spontaneous fission. So, you know, A plus B, we assume that we've made C, which is A plus B, without, mm -hmm. without, um, without actually verifying it. And, uh, and we saw the thing fission, so that, there, that was, and the fission lifetime was 20 milliseconds or something. So, in fact, there was something was produced, but no idea that it was that. But so anyway, we had these, 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 these ongoing uh, discussions with them, and Seaborg was heavily involved with all of this. But um, um, so the timing of when shuttles went back and forth and the wheel moved because the shuttle the, the detectors were you had a, a detector that was facing the rim of the wheel it was like this and then every so often you would shuttle over to another detector because when the alpha what the the recoil of the nucleus from the alpha particle can actually send the 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 the, the nucleus off of the wheel into the detector right. so you then presumably have particles in the detector that you then move over to, and there's another detector over there so you essentially have full solid angle to be able to to, to look for the decay of these so you can do the the mother daughter granddaughter uh, sequence in this 
but the timings on all these all are 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 adjustable and and Albert kept tweaking the 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 the, the the, uh, uh, the 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 potentiometers that, that determined the, the the actual timing on this, and without really recording very well what he had done, so my job in analyzing the data was to try to find which knobs Albert had twiddled the night before, because the the way the data were written on the tape, we would end up with overlapping. Some, there were some mm -hmm. events that should have been in the last position of the wheel that were actually in the next position of the wheel. So it was, it was an interesting thing. But it, at the end of it, we ended up with uh, uh, seeing about 80 or 90 atoms of element 106. And so that was, you know, that was, now they're doing it with one event. When you get up to the 118 or whatever, because the cross sections are so low, um, and, and the experimental techniques are, are, are very different now too, but uh, and much more sensitive than, than, than anything that we had. So why was there so much competition between you and the Russians over finding element 106? That seems like, I mean, that doesn't seem like a super practical element to be able to, to use or anything. No, it isn't. Uh, it, it's just the prestige, the, the scientific prestige. Okay. You know, it, the Russians, um, the Russians during the Cold War were... Um, you, Keeping up, not not only keeping up, but but going ahead. Right. So if uh, the best example of that that I can give is you know fast forward um, another 10, 15 years or so when I'm running the Bevatron. Um, so the Bevatron is was uh, it was started off as a six GeV machine, enough energy to be able to make the antiproton, and that was that was its basic purpose in life was discovering the antiproton. And um, there was, uh, so, so uh, Lawrence was the, uh, was the inventor of all this, and he um, had an extremely brilliant engineer whose name was Bill Brobeck, who designed all these machines. And uh, so he, and the site of it was going to be in Berkeley, in, in the hills of Berkeley. So this is, real estate is extremely precious at that point. Flat real estate is almost impossible to get. Um, so Brobeck designed a machine, and uh, which was 200 meters in circumference, with four very large magnets, and it was a massive device. And uh, 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 Lawrence looked at this and said, "This is too big. I, it won't fit on the site." And he said, "Go back, design something that will still reach six GeV, but in fact is, is smaller." So Brobeck went back. And design what became the Bevatron. It was about 100 meters in in, in circumference, um, and it was extremely successful, and so on. So uh, when I was uh, in charge of, of of the Bevatron, which was in the 1980s, and it was built in 1954, so this is many years afterwards, uh, and it kept relevant. You know, the many higher energies that were now at Brookhaven and at, at at CERN and other places. Um, but the uh, the Bevatron kept uh, being relevant by sort of changing its scope and mission. So instead of accelerating protons, uh, they connected it with the Super Hilac, which was the same machine at Yale, which has been upgraded and whatnot from the Hilac to the Super Hilac, to be able to inject any ion. 
So it became a heavy ion machine at, at that particular point. And so we developed, we sort of pioneered programs in medical physics and in, uh, uh, and in what, what became the field of relativistic heavy ion collisions, looking for quark-gluon plasmas. Our energies were too low for that. But we saw indications of flow and, uh, and sort of the beginnings of setting the groundwork, basically, for what, for what Rick and, um, and, and now the LHC are doing with heavy ions. But the... Um, and just some of the medical work too. Yeah, the medical work. Yeah. No, uh, okay. The oh yeah, I, I, right. Um, so at an accelerator conference, I was. Uh, this was in the early 1980s. Uh, accelerator conference in San Francisco. Actually, this this very quiet Russian came up to me. And um, and he, he said, "You are Jose Alonso. You are you run the Bevatron." And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Well, I am Igor Isinsky, and I am the director of the or the operations manager for the Synchrophasatron in Dubna." So we'd all heard about the Synchrophasatron, which was a big machine that was very similar to 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 ours, and which had been built also about the same time. So you know, we did something. The Russians had to do it, so it was it was just this kind of thing. Right. Um, so anyway, the bottom line there was we became fast friends, and I've I've until he he passed away a number of years later. But um, but in the meantime, uh, he invited me to Dubna, and uh, uh, I had so I had the, the chance to, to 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 see him and 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 see the experimental facilities they had there. And at one point, uh, he says, "Would you like to see the synchrophasatron?" I said, well, you know, is the sky blue? <laughs> of course I would. <laughs> so he takes me into this big, huge round building. And I look at it, and my God, it looks familiar. You know, the same engineering, the same everything else. And uh, so he starts describing it. Well, it's a machine. It's 200 meters in circumference. <laughs> and he says, and we have, the, you know, some of these engineering problems. We've got vacuum problems here. And he says, oh, yeah, I know that one. We've got that, too. And, it, and on and on and on and on. So, the, you know, it was quite obvious that what had happened when, when those original plans were filed away, they somehow found their way over, and the Russians actually built that machine. Wow. So that's that. And that happened over and over again. But the thing that was really fascinating was that so they had this machine which they understood uh they had mapped the field in a way which was completely out of the question for us to try to do they had so the the the, the internal size of the machine was huge um and at every field along the way up uh, along the ramp they, they'd flat top it at that field and make measurements at sort of on a grid of one centimeter over this thing that is four meters wide and about a meter and a half high uh, at every at, at maybe a, a, a thousand points along along the way, well, you know that's manpower and and power and time um, is just impossible for for us to do. But they they had done this, and so they had a perfect model of what that machine looked like. And so if they if they can do that, then they can do the beam dynamics without without any any right. question. So so he was saying, you know, theoretically. I calculate I should be able to extract 96% of the beam, but I'm only getting 92%, and I don't understand where it's coming from. So I'm going, my God, you know, we're, we, we, we consider ourselves incredibly fortunate if we could tune the machine in such a way that we could get 40% extraction efficiency. So <laughs> anyway, but, but the thing, so they understood the machine perfectly, but you go out to the experimental hall, 
they had these old, very rustic set of spectrometers and things, which were basically not even used. They did not have the science infrastructure to use the beams. The accelerators were all built as, as political tools. That's really interesting. It's, it's, it was, it was so a fascinating. Strange. And, and uh, the, the first conference that, that Igor had invited me mm. to uh, was, it was a conference entitled uh, The Renovation of Old Accelerators. And, uh, and, and these were accelerators that had all been built in the 1950s and the 1960s, again, to keep up with the rest. Um, but now this was in 1980, so this 20 years later, and, uh, and, and basically they had not advanced or, or, or really developed and modernized in any way. So they invited me to go to, to, to describe how, what had happened to the Bevatron. Uh, which was, you know, light years, uh, of which the last was the acceleration of heavy ions mm. and, um, uh, and, and increased flexibility and increased, you know, better experimental areas and so on. So, so they were, um, uh, they're extremely interested in, in that. But that, that was a, a really um, um, uh, telling experience for me to be able to go there and see that and, 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 and sort of the history of the evolution of that. But as you can see, I mean, I'm, I'm an experimental physicist um, in, and, uh, in, in, in really dealing with, with particle accelerators and in dealing with, to me, the, the, what is most interesting is not the accelerator itself uh, uh, or the beam, if you will, but, but the applications of it and how one uses it. So I mentioned medical accelerator, medical, uh, for instance. Right. And uh, so I, I, one of the things that I found really most fascinating was, in fact, being able to treat patients. Right. Um, and, 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 that, and I'm still involved in that, in, in that field. Um, and the way that works, if you will, uh, or, the, or my, my, I think I'd like to consider my contribution to this, was that different people have different views of the systems. Um, the, um, uh, for instance, uh, you know, an accelerator physicist prides himself, herself on the, on the beams, They're tight, low emittance, bright, nice, right. you know, high quality, high, beams. Yeah. Just high quality across the board. Beams. Yeah. The, um, the medical, the radiation oncologist says, I don't care about that at all. Give me a field that is 30 centimeters in diameter that is 2% uniform across this that I can control uh, to deliver, to get the dose that I want in, in the, in, you know, in terms of modulation of the energy and, 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 and the three dimensional aspects of this. But I mean, aren't uh, so, those things kind of related in hmm? terms of, aren't those things kind of related? You would have to be able to have a well-controlled, I mean, it doesn't have to be small, obviously. Well, you would have to have you know, a well-controlled, well-understood beam to be able to produce yes, this for uh, the oncologist. Uh, on, on the other hand, the control that you need for that involved a technology that in the 1970s, 1980s, we just did not have. Okay. Uh, so the only thing that we were able to do really was to, to, to follow what, what the radiation oncologist wanted was we would spread the beam out and uh, collimate it, um, and then measure its uniformity. And the uniformity measurement was all done with, with X-ray film. So you have these big, you know, 
very very expensive way of doing this in one shot. Uh, you put this in the beam and you expose it for for a little bit of time, and uh, then then process develop it, and then with a densitometer you're you're measuring the uniformity of the field. Um, but there were various clever techniques that had actually most of it had been worked out by a very very sharp guy that ran the Harvard cyclotron. So this was in conjunction with the proton work that was done at Mass General. We did the heavy hand work, and Mass General did the with the Harvard cyclotron did the did the proton work. Um, and this this fellow who was Andy Kohler was his name um, developed techniques for uh, for making uniform beams, uh, which involved what is known as a double scattering. Uh, process in which um, you take a beam and you have you 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 put you put a foil in the way of the beam and this foil uh, and the distance and the uh, thickness of the foil uh, spread the beam out into a, a Gaussian distribution but if you want to now take and say I want 2% uniformity over the top of this, you've got to spread the whole thing out to make the peak just this 2%, uh, and, and you're, you're wasting most of the beam. So what Andy came up with was the idea of, well, let's have a second station over here, which is sort of halfway between the first and the, and the patient, where um, I put a series of cylinders, and these cylinders block out a portion of the beam um, so that you end up immediately, if you put a film immediately behind that, what you see is you see the Gaussian from the first one, but with holes in it. And behind these cylinders, you put another scattering foil uh, that essentially now starts to fill in these holes. So if you do all the calculations correctly, you end up then with a, at, at the location of the patient where you've just filled these holes up to the point where you now have a flat distribution. And, uh, and you can uh, get roughly 40% of the beam into this. So that's what we did. Um, it, was, it was very difficult for us because we, had, we were using neon beams, 600 MeV per nucleon, so very high energy. The scattering angles are very low, and the, re the nuclear uh, cross-sections are getting to the point where you're losing a lot of the beam from this. Um, but nonetheless, we were able to get that kind of uniformity. And so we treated a number of patients, about 200 patients or so roughly, with, um, with the, a full course of radiation therapy. And it was really the beginnings of, uh, of, of the clinical use of these kinds of beams, right. um, which, you know, we... Um, uh, one of the real difficulties was that, and the pro, and the reason protons were so much more widespread now than than, than before, is basically the conservatism of the radiation oncology community, because um, the protons biologically look very similar to X-rays. So you have the characteristics of the proton beam compared to the X-ray beam, where you you have a Bragg peak, so right. you can concentrate the dose right at the end. Uh, you don't have an exit dose, but the biology is basically the same. Uh, so you can then you know, vary one parameter at a time. With us, the biology of a heavy ion beam is very different. And it's, it's different because the ionization density is so much higher for the heavy ion beam. Um, so, uh, however, uh, so we had difficulty in, um, in, in, in you, might, you might say, the next generation of our, of our work. Um, but the Europeans sort of slowly did it. They got on board. 
the Americans still we don't have a carbon a carbon or heavy ion facility in, in this country. There's some that are being built now, but the Japanese embraced it with complete vigor, so that now there are about eight or nine carbon treatment facilities, which are all based. Uh, they all came out of the first facility, which was outside of Tokyo, a town called Chiba, and a laboratory that was built there, where they built a very, very lovely set of synchrotrons to produce the beams. But then the delivery systems that they use were modeled entirely on what we had done. So we worked with them to help them. But these tell- plants weren't stolen. Like the no, 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 <laughs> yeah, not stolen. No, 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 with complete cooperation. And we kept telling them, look, your beams, we do what we do because of the fact that we're dealing with really old hardware. And this is all we can do. You've got a beautiful new machine over here. Why don't you do something that's a bit better? Oh, no, your system works. We will do that. We know we have a base from which we start, and we will slowly do the development. So, and that development has continued. I mean, a lot of the scanning systems were, were developed there. Uh, superconducting gantries were developed there. And so it's, uh, so they, and then in addition to that, one of the things that the Japanese did was they got industry involved um, in a very complicated way because the first machine that was built involved about six or seven of the major Japanese companies. Hitachi wow. did one, uh, Toshiba, uh, Sumitomo, <laughs> and so on. The magnets were done by one, the beam lines here, the beam dynamics, the RF system was done by another, and so on. They, and they all sort of combined. That's funny. I'll have like a Toshiba TV, and next time I'll be like, well, they also made these. <laughs> they also, right, right. <laughs> The um, and and the uh, the one that really sort of came out on top was Hitachi. So they now market um, proton therapy synchrotrons, a little synchrotron for proton therapy. Um, that is, uh, it's a beautiful little machine. So it's uh, and and with with all of the gantries and scanning systems and everything else mm-hmm. that's done. So, yeah. um, anyways, it's 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 been a great a great deal of fun. Yeah. Um, so. Um, did was the leak to uh, the Russian groups ever discovered? Was no. it no, no, just, no. And it, and just it, kept on irrelevant. appearing. It's irrelevant. Yeah. It, it doesn't really matter. matter. Yeah. yeah, I guess that I doesn't mean, prevent you from doing your work. I just thought no, 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 no. I mean, you know, from from one from one standpoint, um, were the Russians ever competitors in uh, in in the in the science? And with the exception of the heavy element work, the answer was no. You know, they're heavy ion machines. They're, 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 they're large-scale synchrotrons that uh, uh, were never really competitive in terms of the... Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they, they, they did some, some research, some experiments, but not, uh, nothing that would, one would really consider to be a, a true competitor. I don't know if you can answer this, but has there ever been anything the other way where a, a phantom document appeared on, on your desk? Mm-hmm. No. Nothing no. like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, if, if, if you will, the uh, uh, the role of uh, of the intelligence community um, was that yeah, was really one way. I mean, the the, 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 the material all traveled in one direction. Okay. So that was, you know, as, as we well know, even with the with the development of nuclear weapons, it was all also all the same. Mm-hmm. So uh, earlier you talked a lot about people you worked with being kind of cowboys. Yeah. Uh, would you consider yourself a physics a cowboy? cowboy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. No. 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 <laughs> no. Could make a great tagline. You know, yeah, Jose, right. Alonso Jose Alonso and the Alonso physics cowboys. cowboys. <laughs> cowboy boots and spurs and <laughs> cowboy hat into the lab. No. <laughs> no. 
No, no, yeah. No. So what would you say makes a physics cowboy? That? What makes a cowboy is um, sort of charging ahead without without really completely thinking of the. Uh, so I mean, a really good example of Al Giorso as a cowboy um, was that. Uh, so fast forward again a number of years, where so I started out as a postdoc for him. And after two years, uh, Carol went to Livermore, mm-hmm. and I transferred into the accelerator division, working at the Bevatron and and then at the Hilac as well. So I was managing the Hilac and the Bevatron. Um, and so, of course, if you're managing this kind of a facility, uh, the mantra that you have to deal with is safety. And you're, you're dealing with high voltages, you're dealing with radiation sources, you're dealing with, you know, with areas where you can have a lot of serious accidents. And uh, so Al came, became from a, transferred from being my boss to somebody I was, an experimenter, I was responsible for his safety. Um, so we, in, in our experiments, and he kept doing experiments, um, and never really to the point. I mean, 106 was the, was the heaviest one that he ever uh, worked on, and, and continuing on beyond that just became essentially not possible for, the, for him and his group. He needed new instrumentation, totally new spectrometers that he just did not have the capability of getting funding for. I mean, he, yes, he had designs, and, and, and he tinkered, but, uh, but he was never able to really build something successful. Um, so uh, I was constantly battling with him, if you will, because uh, there's radiation gates to go from the counting areas into the, into the, the caves where the beam was, beams were. And so we had a bar. And uh, so he said, the radiation levels in there are really low. And he'd go onto the bar. So uh, we changed from a bar to a gate, and you'd climb over the gate, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so on and so on. And, and his his rationale for doing this, he says, "Look, if I call a, if if I want to go in and I have to call the control room, it takes them thirty seconds to shut the beam off and disable the alarms and, and all the rest of this. I get the key, open the go in, do what I want to do, come back out, call the control room." And by the time they get the beam back on, I've lost five minutes of beam time in a time when beam time was precious and, uh, and, 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 and he really wanted every second. So that's, that's my definition of a cowboy. Okay. Yeah. So in other, in other words, yes, we keep preaching safety and he's saying that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, A, it doesn't apply to me. I, and one of the, a good example of that was that at, um, at one point, a number of years before we came, he was working with a curium target, which was fiercely radioactive. Um, and he... Uh, put the target into the target chamber, didn't close the valves in the right way, started the pump up, and basically sucked the curium target into the pump and into the entire building. So the whole area was massively wow. contaminated, and it took months to get to get all that. And in the in the meantime, before this, before it was really discovered, he had, he was in the area. So uh, you know, he ended up being fiercely radioactive. 
Um, but he, you know, he lived to 96, and so it, it didn't really affect him that much. But, um, uh, but you know, that was the one thing in terms of when I started getting into management activities and managing the accelerators, it was a question of, uh, of, of having to, uh, to really understand the safety implications of things. So when you did go into that management position, when you were director mm-hmm. over, over there, what was that like managing such a, a massive undertaking? It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. It was, it, it, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. First of all, the crew that was involved, which was sort of a, the, the Bevatron crew, which kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because the budgets kept getting and the costs get, get getting higher. Um, but we managed, we increased the efficiency to the point where uh, our our total number of operating hours exceeded every year pretty much what, what it had been before uh, with fewer breakdowns and better reliability because because we had we had the ability of uh, devoting a certain fraction of the budget uh, to upgrade activities. And so we would identify areas that were weak and really change these or modify these to where, where in fact, we, we could improve the reliability. Um, and the, to me, the greatest satisfaction was being able to make sure that the experimenters that came, because it was an outside user facility, so most all of the people were, came from outside to set up experiments there, um, that they ended up having good data. And so I didn't, I did some physics myself. Uh, I had access to the beam, of course, and to some of these experimental equipment. Uh, but most of my physics was done vicariously. So it was sort of collaborating with them. And actually, in, in some cases, I ended up as a co-author in some of the papers that, 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 that they wrote. But, um, uh, but it was largely, uh, as I say, just sort of looking over their shoulders and... Um, uh, reveling in their triumphs and, uh, and and despairing in their failures, <laughs> but there were some some experiences that I'll carry with me forever. I mean, there was one in particular, which was there was a device called a streamer chamber. So you know what a bubble chamber is. Bubble chamber basically is uh, you have a, 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 a track going through. A liquid of some some sort or other, which is right at the point where, in fact, this you get nucleation of the the, the charge produces nucleation. Uh, that's 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 it's a very lovely technique, but it's also extremely inefficient because you're cycling everything on a basis of the 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 big pumps and compressors that that are changing the the, the pressure on the on the on the liquid you're dealing with. Uh, so whether you have an event or not, really. You just don't know. Yeah, you, 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 if you're lucky, you get an event in, in this. But a streamer chamber is a big magnet. In this case, the gap is about one meter and the length is about five or six meters with a field of maybe 10 kilogauss on it. And uh, it's filled with uh, helium-neon gas mixture um, and a series of, uh, of screens, which are conductive, um, and you, um, uh, if you, it's called, it's, it's called a streamer chamber because in fact, if you, um, apply high voltage pulse across these, uh, and, and if there's ionization, 
you can actually get uh, a, a, a track, right. uh, uh, which which is is visible. But it, it's a track which is sort of you know, the the beam is going in one direction, the track is a, is across it because that's that's the way the plates are. Um, but the track, what you do is you put you have a Marx generator that puts an you know a nanosecond pulse across this, so that you get the beginnings of this of this track, but it quenches right away when the when the when the volt high voltage pulse goes off. So what you do is um, you you and you run extremely low beam currents through this, especially when we're doing heavy ion work. So this was a holmium beam, the, this particular example, um, and. Uh, so that you have a, a teeny little scintillator outside of the, of the detector and you steer the beam so that the particle goes through that. Then you have a target in the middle over here which is displaced on the basis of the rigidity of the beam and where it goes. Um, so, and the target has a little scintillator in it or just behind it or whatever. So that you can get a signal here, you get a signal, a particle went here and then a particle went here and then you have at the end, outside of the chamber, you have another one. And so if the particle goes through here, goes through here, and goes through there, nothing happened. It was not interesting. If you don't get a count there, then aha, there's something, something happened in here. So then you trigger the Mars generator and get this, 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 the, the flash. And so if there are, if there are tracks and, and, and if a reaction occurred in the target, then, then you can actually see it. Um, well, because the, the, you're dealing with only one particle per spill, there's no radiation to deal with. And in fact, it was possible to walk in the back of the streamer chamber into this dark room. And there's cameras all up here that are taking pictures of everything. And uh, come up to, a, there's a little stool, and you sit down on the stool, and everything's black. And there's a little port, so you open this port, and so you you can look into this streamer chamber, yeah. and you know it's it's physics happening in front of your eyes. Flash, <laughs> all these particles. Flash, 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 flash. <laughs> and, and, you know that that to me was 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 a defining moment in my physics career, if you will, of right. essentially seeing, seeing that thing happening right yeah. there. But then, as is, you know, we're dealing here with one GeV per nucleon. The CERN people are dealing with TeV. TeV right. And TeV per nucleon as well, when they're dealing with lead know, or gold know, or whatever. Right. So there, you know, for us, we were seeing like 40 pions, maybe. And the physics was done by basically looking at the number of pi minuses that were produced that were bent in the opposite direction. So in these pictures, it was relatively easy to pick out the ones that were going this against the whole stream of these that are going in this direction, of which many of them were proton fragments from the target. And yes, there are some pions, but, but, but it's a, uh, the, the number of pions is really almost the same, if not slightly less or maybe slightly more than the number of nucleons that you're, that you're actually seeing. Uh, whereas it, it, with with these guys, you, you look at some of the pictures, or some of the pictures that came out of, of Star at Rick with the big detectors there. You got ten thousand pounds. How do, it still amazes me that you can get physics out of this, and how they they go actually go about doing this. Um, so anyway, that was. Um, but I had, I mean, not only the 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 satisfaction of seeing this kind of physics going through, um, and and being really the pioneering front edge of these things. For instance, the first time we got uranium beams, 
um, we would get uh, huge losses. I mean, if, if we would start with with milliamps of, the, of, of peak power at the at the HILAC and end up with uh, with maybe five uranium atoms at one GeV per nucleon. Um, I, I also want to point out. I mean, I, I'm used to hearing about uranium beams because I'm mm-hmm. in the field, but it is kind of crazy that we that you started accelerating literally uranium yeah. beams, full beams made out of full, uranium. Made out of yeah. uranium, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Well, the way in which that works, um, you start with an ion source, you know, like, like, like yeah. any other, any, any other right. ion source. And at the HILAC, uh, they developed this, uh, uh, a whole injector, which is really based on this. Um, and the, uh, the ion sources, we used penning ion sources, pig sources, that uh, uh, the highest uh, charge state was about a three plus that that you could get reasonable currents from. So you have uh, three out of two hundred and thirty eight. So it's roughly one over uh, roughly one percent is the. So it's traveling very very slowly. Uh, so you need then an accelerator to uh, which was an, in this in our case was a Vitero accelerator, which is a, it's a linac that a special kind of a of a linac. Uh, that would accelerate it up to 110 kilovolts per nucleon. At that point, we would strip it, mm-hmm. and it would strip into about a uranium 10 plus, eight, eight plus, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when you when you run things through a stripper, basically, you you end up with 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 a distribution of charge states, but the maximum is related to the velocity of the ion and the type of stripper that you use. Um, so the stripper that we use, we couldn't use carbon foil strippers, which is sort of typical because the beam currents were just the amount of energy deposited was yeah, such that it just no lifetime it just, just poof yeah. just disappeared. Yeah. Uh, so actually, we used a fluorocarbon vapor. Okay. And, uh, oh, and this 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 turned okay. out yeah. So so it's it's it's, it's it, this particular material was a diffusion pump fluid. Uh, so. It, it, with a vacuum, it was perfect. It was you know, not not a real issue, um, and it was an, a, a much more efficient stripper with a fluorine than with than, than hydrogen from from a hydrocarbon. Um, there were problems with it, environmental problems, as we discovered later, um, after we had developed it and run it for a number of years, because in fact, there's a teeny amount of the ionization of the decomposition of the molecule produce a small amount of HF. And some of the technicians were, you know, sort of noting acrid odors when they were servicing it. So, you know, you don't do that anymore. But that was that. That's what we did. So you end up with a with a uranium f- from three plus to about ten plus. Then it goes into the pre-stripper tank of the Super Hilac, which runs at seventy megahertz, and the thing the diameter is about four, four or five meters, and the length was about twenty meters, um, and then comes up to uh, what was it, about one MeV per nucleon, roughly. Um, so LINAC is all based on velocity, so that's why it's MeV per nucleon that you, that, that you deal with. And you run it through another stripper, um, and it comes to, I've forgotten what it was. It was about, it was, it, it went from three plus to, I've forgotten what they were, like seven plus, and then maybe 12 plus or so. And then through the post-stripper tank, where it comes out at 8 MeV per nucleon. And uh, there we would have uh, 40 plus. So now, every time that you're stripping, you're only getting roughly maximum 10% in that particular charge state. So every stripping stage, you're losing a factor of 10 in the beam. Um, and then it, it, it then went down a transfer line, 
which is a uh, it's about a, oh, almost a half a mile worth of uh, worth of, of, of transit, which went through it through a tunnel, and oh, oh, a lot of it was was above ground, and then down, and then down through just some compound bends, and 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 injected into the Bevatron. Um, so you start with milliamps, and you end up with counting counting individual ions at the end when you're when you're. Yeah, I was going to say that's a that's a lot of losses through all those. It's a huge yeah. amount of losses. How it's, do you get milliamps of uranium in the ion source? That sounds like three a, milliamps of uranium. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but this is now in a, in a duty factor with uh, which is about a, um, a millisecond long, and uh, pulsed at uh, at at two hertz. Um, mm. And, and and so it was pulsed at two hertz, and so that you run, but the Bevatron ran at a quarter hertz, uh, so that you had eight pulses coming down the transfer line, and the ninth pulse was, or the seventh pulse was coming down. The eighth pulse was actually injected into the Bevatron, mm-hmm. so that's another loss that's that, you, right. that, that you're dealing with. So which is why why, but the, at this particular point, efficiency was not was was sought after but was not critical the critical thing was getting a few atoms at that velocity so uh, enough to be able to 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 do experiments with and some of the experiments i mean the first experiments that we did with uranium were atomic physics experiments um the the first question is can you strip all 92 electrons off of a uranium atom can you really get those inner that's yeah. That's K-shell. a shell. What has electrons off of it? And um, and and the answer turned out to be yes. How? <laughs> uh, however, it turned out also that um, uh, that carbon was not the most efficient stripper. That in fact, they, we discovered that car- copper foils actually pr- provided a, a better, a more more a better way of, of of doing this. But then the fascinating thing was the atomic physicist came in and. Put one electron back, or essentially do it through a spectrometer, look for uranium-91+. plus. So you now have one electron in a huge electric field measuring lamb shifts. Okay. Measuring lamb shifts in, uh, in, in the, what is this... The, the strongest electric field that you can get in the universe, yeah, which is around a uranium nucleus, and 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 the lamb shift instead of being in kilohertz or megahertz or whatever it is was in kilovolts. So they're actually you know looking looking at the spectroscopy of these things um, by uh, and 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 it, it, and, and you know, so measuring measuring so what what they're doing is I, I don't remember exactly what the experimental technique was, but if it's kilovolts you you can that's relatively easy to measure. So um, and and the uh, good atomic physics friends who were who, you know, really really fascinated by by being able to do that. Then then another thing that was interesting was the the atomic physics of stripping of the stripping process itself. And they find, for instance, if you take a, a stripper which is a single crystal, and you look at the charge state distribution of uranium ions coming through this, if you orient the crystal in such a way that the beam direction goes right along the channels. In fact, you, you, you get, don't get as, as high charge states. Um, because you know, you, in order to strip those extra electrons off, you really have to get close to a high electric field, which is close to the nucleus. 
And if you're channeling along the, the directions of the crystal axis, you're not, not getting those fields. So you can actually see this in these experiments. But I also wanted to ask because, I mean, you started out, you said when you were young and you first saw some of these, these particle accelerators and you said, I wanted to build a cyclo cyclotron. And obviously, I know now you're still I'm working still, on still cyclotrons. Involved, right? uh, and uh, so I wanted to think because, I mean, I've had second thoughts even just through grad school if i if i went into the right field if this is what i wanted to do for a long period of time did you ever have second thoughts about wanting to go into accelerator and nuclear physics no 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 right. uh not at all because it's you know I've, I've enjoyed it um i feel i've been able to contribute and um and it's, it's been very satisfying um i, I i've you, know, you sometimes think about what my what would my career have been if I had not done this, and uh, and you know, totally different, and as far as I could see, not as satisfying for for me anyway. I think that was, uh, um, yeah. but again, so much of it was serendipity, and so much of it was was being presented with opportunities, which was able to uh, to 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 capitalize on, if you will. Yeah. So uh, some of the people that I've, I've had on do their work a lot of the time because they feel like it, it's very important for them or for, for other people. Like Hugh Herr is a great example of someone making prosthetic limbs for, for people that are uh, amputees. Um, and then I've had other people on that do work because they just think it's the coolest thing ever. Like, like Ray Weiss just loves gravitational waves, thinks it's this <laughs> right. like amazing field. Um, so I was wondering, do you think particle uh, physics, accelerated physics, nuclear physics are something that's kind of like fundamentally important to society? Or do you think it's just something that's satisfying? And, and why is it that you were drawn to this so much? That's, that's, that's a little bit of a tough question. I think that, um, um, I mean, the satisfaction I get out of it is uh, seeing something used. So just just building an accelerator to be able to get 10 milliamps of protons out, I think is, yeah, it's, it's neat. But uh, but but to, uh, I, what drives me, I think, more right now is with with our machines is the isotope possibilities, the applications, and the benefits that can that can accrue from them. Um, so you know, in when we were treating patients at the Bevatron. Uh, constantly going through my head was there are people that are walking around today that would be dead otherwise. And that's, that's uh, you know, I, I've never met any of them particularly, but, um, uh, but nonetheless, the, the, that's that sense of having been able to contribute to their uh, well-being and cure their disease is... Uh, um, and, and, and with, these, with, with the isotopes that we're working on uh, possibility now... Uh, it's the same thing. I, I, to, to me, it's the satisfaction of, of of knowing that what I'm doing is contributing to helping mankind, if you will. So this might sound kind of silly, but uh, can you describe, because we've been working on this together for years with our, our, our medical mm -hmm. isotope collaborations, um, can you describe what uh, Isodar is working on with some of the medical isotope applications and why you think that's so exciting okay, for, for the audience for the audience <laughs> of course <laughs> right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, well you know a good example if you you can't I, I can't show this but mm -hmm. the the the, um, uh, the 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 picture that you dug up first which mm -hmm. is of the um, uh, the the met metastasized no the metastasized um, um, 
tumor. Yeah, yeah, the actinium, metastasized prostate cancer, right. uh, which was completely cleared up by uh, by simple applications of, of actinium two twenty five. Um, that's that's. I mean, I've used that picture a number of times. Most recently with my daughter, who's an endocrinologist, <laughs> and and uh, uh, so that that's uh, is um, you know is uh, that's a big thing to me. Right. Now, now the, the technical challenges. So, trying to work on the technical challenges of this, um, namely, how do we overcome the the fact that we're we're dealing with six hundred kilowatts of beam power? Um, that's a challenge. Uh, would you mind taking a couple steps back and just kind of overlaying the experiment? Sure. Um, so the okay, let, let's let's talk about about um, the use of radiation, if you will, in the treatment of of malignancies. Um, you're dealing with uh, first of all, you've got to know where the tumor is. And in the first iteration of, of, of what I worked with, you're dealing with large solid tumors that are well localized, in which case then if you tailor a beam to a given size and shape uh, and in, in depth and in, in three dimensions, basically you can put a curative or a dose of radiation which can, which can essentially kill that particular tumor. Um, and, and so you know, it's complicated because it's easy to make a two-dimensional distribution with just a collimator. But if you try to, to, to actually conform it to a, to a complex shape, especially if this complex shape happens to have some very sensitive tissue around it that you really keep must have a huge differential in the radiation dose to each of these, it's a very difficult problem. Um, but nonetheless, it is uh, it is it is solvable, and um, and and the, the current generation of, uh, of of beam external beam radiation uh, uh, treatments for uh, are are quite successful, um, and so you know and, and and I feel I feel very good about having contributed to that through various things, not only through the work at the Bevatron, but also through in work afterwards. Um, there was, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, yesterday at one of the sessions for the alumni here, uh, there, there's a new alumni award that is, has been established, uh, for alumni who have, um, contributed to, uh, developments of, uh, of new techniques and new um, uh, things that are of value to society and to mankind, and uh, there was the award was given to two people. One was a young lady who managed to get through MIT very hard. I mean, she flunked out once, but came back and <laughs> finished. Ended up as a surgeon, and is now she, her degree was in, me in mechanical engineering, so she used that. And her tech, what she is doing now is essentially spinal reconstructions. And taking it, she has some pictures of, of you know, completely deformed youngsters. Or uh, and then the, the techniques that were used for doing this. But the other, the other person, which is what I'm getting at, um, was a, uh, his degree was in, in, in pharmaceuticals or, or life sciences. But his passion 
and he was wearing a red coat, so that means he's been out for 50 years. His passion was uh, it was fusion energy. That's an interesting mix. Okay. And and so he said, so he said, I accept this award not because I have done anything, but because I have been influential in making other people who could do things do them. So, uh, so for instance, he was he was saying it was my goal to make sure that every person in Congress comes through the PSFC to see the fusion activities that are going on there and to get turned on by 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 the work that's being done right next to our lab, by the right way. next to the lab, exactly, <laughs> precisely. So that if you see congressmen running through there, it's because of this guy. Yeah. By the way, Isidar's over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so in the same way, uh, really, you know, perhaps I haven't done a lot of these developments. But by being able to communicate and, uh, and, 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 and convey the excitement and the possibilities of this to people who actually can, that, that, you know, that, that's, I think, where, where, where a lot of my contributions have, have, have come. Um, so now, uh, as we're working on these neutrino sources, mm-hmm. uh, which require this ultra-high current, and um, we're sort of looking at, uh, gee, how can we apply these in, in other areas? Um, because the National Science Foundation wants this broader impacts section to be written. It says, well, you know, uh, radiation, radio, uh, isotopes that are used for either diagnostic or, or therapeutic applications are all produced with uh, beams that are roughly the same energy. And, um, uh, and just that right now there's much lower current. And because of the high current that's needed for the neutrino production... Um, you, can we apply this for for um, medical isotopes? And um, and the answer is, if you just look at the cross sections and the production rates, um, you know, man, it's a it's a, a blowtorch for this. But the fact that it is a blowtorch is is also a, a serious problem because, in fact, you've got to be able to dissipate the the, the power from the target. Um, and and this is this is complicated because you know we have a neutri- a target for producing the neutrinos which we can cool properly but in order to do that it has to be big because the critical thing is not the power so much as the power density so you've got um our Larry our engineer tells us you know 2 2 kilowatts per square centimeter is about is something that can be dealt with on an engineering standpoint so if you have 600 kilowatts, you well, you just need, you know, you need... A big target, spread <laughs> it out target. all over the target, right. Um, and when you come to isotopes, unfortunately, in order to get the isotope out, you've got to dissolve this target. And so this involves, and the bigger the target, the more acid you've got to use and the, the, or, or caustic chemicals to actually be able to do this, and the bigger the waste stream. Because and, and, and the waste stream is a serious waste stream because not only is it chemical, but it's also radioactive. So it's what's called mixed waste. And this is extremely difficult to, to deal with. Um, so those are, those are the sort of the problems that, that, that one has to deal with in terms of, uh, of trying to um, uh, use, uh, use apply, the whole power. Uh, apply, uh, yeah, to use the whole power. Because if you can use the whole power, 
then uh, we've done yeah, we've, we've, done, we've done the calculation. You yeah. can recover a fifteen or twenty or thirty million dollar cost of a facility in a few weeks. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> you bring down something that's currently something like a five hundred thousand dollar treatment to yeah into so, dollar so, range. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, um, it's, uh, yeah. but. Yeah, so I mean, you talked about kind of being a mentor, and you've obviously been a, a huge mentor to me. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you, you. You have. I mean, this has been. I mean, you've helped me very much along the, along the line of my PhD. Um, how do you feel about being a mentor, guiding people through research I love experiences? It. Yeah. I yeah, I, I, I uh, it's it's um, it's very satisfying. It's very mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it gives me a sense of, of of satisfaction to know that that I can help, and that's. Mm-hmm. I feel very strongly about that. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, so thank you. you no, know, thank you. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you've obviously had a very long and illustrious career, but what do you think would probably be your, your biggest achievement or what's something you're probably the most proud of? Um, a very simple thing. Yeah. Flipping the switch to turn some pumps on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and where this came about was um, you know you mentioned my having retired three different times. I've mm-hmm. totally failed retirement. There's <laughs> no question about it. And, and interestingly enough, uh, a month or so ago, I, I uh, updated my resume, my CV, applying to more jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but uh, the, the list of, th- of of things after I retired is actually longer than, than, than before <laughs> I retired. So that, you know, that uh, to me, that's, that, that's great. I mean, that, that's, that's what I look at so many of my classmates that are here mm-hmm. now and, and I view myself as a hell of a lot younger than they are <laughs> younger up here yeah, yeah. because I'm, I keep active. I'm doing things I'm, mm-hmm. and that's uh, and you know, what are they doing They're Well, they're painting or, Doing other things and so on, but this is what I'm doing. I think is is extremely valuable. Um, so, but and again, a lot of this was serendipity, because I retired from LBL, and the next day, Jim Segrist, who was then the division, the physics division head, gives me a call, and said, "Jose, have I got a deal for you? How'd you like to work on Atlas?" So I came back, and so Atlas, the big detector at the Large Hadron Collider, and and uh, which has hundreds of millions of individual detector elements that are scattered all around the world. This university is responsible for that. This laboratory is responsible for this. And then they're also coordinated and put together. And uh, LBL had responsibility for one of the very crucial parts of this. And they were incredibly short on manpower. Um, so uh, it, was, it was an opportunity to come back as, as a rehired retiree in a place where I was a postdoc. You know, because I'm retired, no administrative responsibilities, no worrying about budgets, no performance appraisals, no, no, no none of this. I was just, I was just doing hands-on work, and it was, it was so much fun. It was really absolutely wonderful. And so after I, um, uh, and that was four years that it, that it took to basically get this, and the final, mo- most of the work was done at, at Berkeley itself, uh, at LBL. Um, but then the final several months, we were actually at CERN uh, doing the final assembly of the detector and then the final installation of it in, the, in, in, in this massive, massive, I mean, I, I tell you, standing on the platform with the end caps of Atlas detector pulled apart, surrounded by this 
gigantic thing with 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 i mean it was it was you know, what what hath man wrought here is essentially <laughs> what it was it was a fascinating experience to 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 just see that and uh so but and then getting our thing in um involves some very very practical uh cowboy techniques <laughs> because in fact there was essentially no clearance at all around this um, and uh, how do you slide this 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 tube, which is about so big in diameter, uh, of which the detector was maybe a meter and a half, and uh, the the what I had been working on, which was all of the service uh, wires coming in and out. There are about ten thousand wires on either side, completely and all built around the beam tube. So the, so our nearest detector was actually just a centimeter away from where the where the protons were colliding at at, at six TeV or whatever. And uh, but uh, sliding this thing in, um, engineers went down to a chandlery and bought some sailboat winches. <laughs> so ran a rope a sailing a, a, a lanyard, a halyard through right. the uh, and, and just sort of inching, inching, yeah. inching it in very carefully, making sure that none of the wires were pinched as they got in. Um, and so, but once that was in, then we're done. You know, now the, the actual firing up of it was a whole other team. We were the construction team, and um, and so on. So basically, my 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 involvement with that was was finished, and uh, I came back to. So that was the that was my second retirement, basically from that. Um, I came back and uh, was uh, walking down the hall of Building Fifty, one of the big buildings there, and uh, this cane came out from an office and pulled me in. It was of Kevin Lesko, who was a neutrino physicist, um, who had been very intently working on the project of converting the Homestake gold mine into a deep underground physics lab, which had a huge uh, impact on physics earlier because it was the f where Ray Davis had his large 100,000 gallons of cleaning fluid that was the first person to see solar neutrinos. Right. And and where the, the the anomalies that he saw were the first of the of the many many neutrino anomalies that we're all sort of working with now, uh, which led to the discovery of oscillations. And so there's been a and that was in the 1960s and so a lot of of science already being done there and the Ray Davis's cavern was the management of, of Homestake uh, were so taken by by him that they built this cavern especially for him. So that was um, that was a, a huge thing in an area where they knew there was no gold. <laughs> so, but the um, um, the uh, Homestake closed, and so there was a a move then by the people, the scientists who've been involved with this to, to say, look, convince the company to donate their property to the uh, uh, to government, NSF, DOE, or whatever, to convert into a deep underground physics lab. And uh, so it, it turned out not to be nearly as simple as that because the company said, look, we are we'd be happy to do that, no problem. Uh, the only thing that we demand is that you carry an insurance policy that uh, makes us not responsible, not liable for anything that a dumb scientist is going to do to himself underground. 
because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, underground environments are extremely hazardous. So, in fact, uh, and DOE and NSF both said, look, we're government agencies. There's no way we can do that. We're, everything is self-insured. And so this is, you know, forget it. So the company says, forget it. <laughs> we're not going to do it. Just close yeah. it up, and that's the end of it. Yeah. And, and finally, what the governor of South Dakota uh, said, look, uh, I really want this. He says, we have in the state a wonderful university system, but there's no, nothing to keep our trained scientists, engineers here, especially from the, the School of Mines in Rapid City, which is, a, which is one of the country's best. And, and he says, if you have this laboratory here, it's a magnet to keep these people here. So he pushed very hard um, and, uh, and said, look, the insurance question we can solve. Because, yes, as a government agency, I'm in the same position as all the other government. I cannot get a policy, but I can establish an authority, which is a public-private entity. And the private side of that can buy the insurance policy. The public side of it can fund it and can also provide the resources from the government. And he basically said, you know, anything that you need, any engineer, any office, anything, let me know, and I'll I'll, I'll make it available to you. so NSF, in the meantime, is saying, oh, this is a very complicated situation, and this establishment of an underground laboratory is not something you just do. You've got to go through a process. Well, this process took seven years. And it, was, it started off with, is there interesting underground science to be done? So there, that took a year for Bernard Satellite and his committee to sort of put together a, a case for this. And the answer was, Yes. <laughs> so, and then the next question NSF asks is, well, is there anybody that would like to host this? Duh. Okay, so seven, eight people from around the country and the continent put in their bids. So then, oh, now we've got to do a down select. So, and, and it went from eight to four, four to two, and finally two to one. And the final two to one didn't occur until 2007, 2008. Jeez. And the process started in 2000, which is when the mine shut. Um, so, uh, in the meantime, Mike Rounds, who was the governor of South Dakota, has accumulated a war chest of $115 million, of which $70 million was a private donation from Denny Sanford, who is one of the wealthiest, the wealthiest guy in South Dakota, runs one of the uh, credit card company, and uh, $40 million from the state legislature. If you consider that the population of the state was 750,000 people and that a $40 million allocation to reopening a mine, to setting up a, a laboratory, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge commitment. Uh, but in the meantime, NSF is saying, well, you know, we can't, you, you, that money is yours, it's not ours, it's not our concern, but if you actually try to reopen the mine, you're circumventing the process, and this is not. Uh, so anyway, they started trying to do this, but had, did not have, there was nobody in their, in their environment that was a scientist or that understood anything about laboratories or the infrastructure that was needed or, or anything else. Um, so Lesko looked at me as totally independent, retired. I'm not an employee of the laboratory, and uh, but nonetheless have the right the right credentials to be able to to to, to do this. And so he, um, uh, the cane came out and said, "Jose, how'd you go, how'd you like to go work in South Dakota?" And he says, "Where?" 
<laughs> so I'd never been underground, and I had never um, uh, been in South Dakota either, actually. And so I went up there and interviewed with one of the board members of the South Dakota Science and Technology Authority. And uh, this, this lady, who was a, a very, very lovely friend, um, after talking with me for 10 minutes, she looks at me and says, when can you start? <laughs> and then give us a list of your demands. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I started a, a few weeks after that. Yeah. And, uh, um, and so the first thing to do was, uh, was, was being able to get, find out the shafts have been capped. And we knew there was water coming in. And it had been carefully measured over the years while the homestake was running, and that was 700 gallons per minute of water that was coming in. Uh, they shut the pumps off, so we knew the water was rising. They had put sensors at various levels, and these sensors had sort of regularly ticked off as the as it went up from 8,000 feet to. But it, when it reached about 5,000 feet, they stopped ticking off. And so the question was, well, is there some miracle and there's no more water coming in? Or somehow or other, other sensors from there on, there's been some kind of a failure. Um, as it turned out to be the latter. Because yeah. when we finally did manage to get the shaft repaired to the point, and it was in terrible shape. So we had to, we had to do a lot of repairing work on this. Um, when we finally got down, we found the water actually, before, they were actually, before we were able to start getting it going back down again, it had reached 4,200 feet. So the level we wanted to reach to do the experiment where Ray Davis had his experiments was at 4850. So it's 600 feet of water. Had, the, the, the water had gone 600 feet above above that level. Um, so the you know it's it's uh, there there's there's drifts there are tunnels that are called drifts that uh, something like 600 miles of drifts in that in that mine at levels every 150 feet was another level, so when the water level is rising that just means that these drifts are filling up with water, and um, uh, so the, the 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 rate of rise is dependent on how much a particular level had been developed and the size of the caverns and the volume that was filled with water. But, uh, but we um, sort of started, started this battle of, of fighting the water with having to rebuild the entire infrastructure going down. So everything, 100% humidity, 90 degrees minimum temperature. At the lower levels, it was hotter and, and, and not quite as much at the, at the top levels. But it was, um, so we had to um, totally rebuild the, the, the pumps had to be taken out, rebuilt. Uh, the, uh, the motors had to be replaced. The, all the electrical infrastructure had to be replaced. But, um, and the, the pumping infrastructure was every 1,250 feet, there was another pumping station. So this station would pump water up through a 12-inch uh, pipe up to a reservoir in the next level. And then this reservoir would be the source for the pump up to the next level. So, as I say, the proudest accomplishment of my, my tenure there was when we had the first one set and ab actually able to, 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 to flip it on. So that was, that, that, was a, that was a huge thing. But it was, so pictures taken everywhere and so on. And, and then, and I'm, I'm all dressed in my mining stuff with my hard hat. And, uh, <laughs> and one of my friends in Berkeley says, Jose, 
you don't look like a miner. Your your outfit is far too clean. <laughs> Give it to me. I'll make I'll, I'll make it dirty. I'll make you look like a miner. <laughs> but Throw it some was, coal stains on you. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. It had to be dirty. It had yeah. to be uh, dirt on your face and everything else. But it was it was a wonderful experience working there because the people uh, when the mine closed, none of the people left. Very few of them left because their base was there, their home was there, their life was there. They had worked typically in the mine for 20, 30, 40 years. Their parents had worked, their father had worked there, their grandfather, their great-grandfather, so they were all there. So when we were able to start hiring again and starting to use some of this war chest, these people came out of the woodwork. Uh, And we had one or two who had had been seasoned that were already on board before I came. And, and they, these were all, everybody knew everybody else. They were all friends. And uh, which was the most magnificent resource of manpower because a mining environment is extremely hazardous. And having somebody who knows and understands the environment and knows where to look. So, for instance, in an area where that you have not been in for a while, you first start walking down with a, uh, with, with a, a, a 10-foot iron bar banging the ceiling. And you hear the ding, 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 dong. That change in pitch means there could be five tons of rock that's ready to fall. And uh, and so you so then then it's it's let it fall and then anchor the uh, the, the 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 new surface over there. Yeah. So having that kind of experience to keep to keep the area safe was just uh, was a, a huge, huge thing. So I, my, my, my working there, and again, starting with not knowing anything about this and, and picking it all up and through experience and through training and, uh, um, and, uh, and, and working with the people and, 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 and seeing their satisfaction, one of the, one of the nicest things was the, the environment was ghastly. As I say, it was 90 degrees, 100% humidity. Mm. And when we finally got the water down to the 4850, the water is maybe a few inches below the sill, which is the, the base. And the walls are mucky and yucky, and it's, you know, it's iron oxide everywhere, and it's hot, and it's ghastly. The first cage that goes down, the guy pulls up the cage, walks out, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And that 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 to me is a um, uh, I mean I, I just love that that's yeah. that's I, I'm doing something for 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 people for for whatever and sort of making this guy's life <laughs> restored to where to where he wanted it to be. So anyway, yeah. That, yeah. I think that's a long answer to your question. No, I, I think that's a great place to end. And so, okay. I, uh, thank you very much for coming on. I, I enjoy talking. Well, with it's you. been yeah. great good pleasure. to see you. Yeah. <laughs>